those listening, if you yourself are caught in a domestic violence situation or you know someone who is and you want to offer help, the first place to go is the National Domestic Violence Hotline. The number is 1-800-799-7233. Let me repeat that. The National Domestic Violence Hotline is 1-800-799-7233. Amanda is an incredible person. She went through what was really a harrowing experience, as she will explain to you shortly. But she's also made the most of every opportunity given her. And she has devoted herself to really addressing the issue of domestic abuse in as many ways as possible. She's made it her career. So she's a really extraordinary person to listen to. Amanda, welcome. Hi, thank you, Chris. But what most people don't realize is that a very large percentage of homeless mothers and children in, the, in this country are homeless principally because of domestic violence. Over 50% of all mothers with children are homeless have domestic violence as part of their personal history. That should be shocking to Americans, and it should compel us to want to do something about it. It certainly is true of homestretch. Roughly, roughly 65% of families come to us have that as a, as a significant part of their history. So that means they come to us traumatized. It means that they're homeless because homelessness was safer than remaining in the home. Now, Amanda, in a sense, your story is both common and unique. Common because so many homeless mothers are, are escaping domestic violence but also uncommon in that you experienced one of the most, most of the, one of the most grievous situations that we've ever encountered in our history of homestretch, yet you came through it. You are genuinely a survivor, and you have made it your mission to help others escape violence, too. So let's first tell us a little bit about what happened to you, your personal story, and how you came to homestretch. Well, it's just... A, a few tries, as we all know, um, the average amount of times that a person will try to leave an abusive relationship is seven times, and I can say that I fell right in that, um, maybe even more. It's it's scary when somebody leaves, um, and for me, how I started to explain it to people is there's so many emotions around leaving that person. Um, there's the fear, there's the love, you hold on to the hope for change. But one of the things that comes from leaving is you no longer have your eyes on the person who's been abusing you. And what's very common after you leave an abuser is the stalking. It's harder for a victim to know how to pre prepare or predict what's coming when they're not in that home. And that was what took so many, it took so many times for me to leave is because there was something going on. So um, I had 14 months that I was in this relationship, which is not necessarily a long time compared to a lot of people who I've met who've been trying to leave their abuser for years, sometimes even decades. On, on that level, I think I'm blessed to have only lost 14 months of my life in this relationship. Um, but we had many encounters with law enforcement, other neighbors calling, other witnesses calling the police, a couple of times me calling the police, um, several trips to the hospital for me, emergency surgeries. Uh, eventually I was arrested 
because I did recant in court um, because of that fear. It's very common for victims to recant. And I did it, again, out of fear, as well as the love and the hope for the change. Everything was intertwined. Um, but one of the biggest barriers to me leaving now when I look back and see why didn't I leave sooner? You know, I had the time when I was in the hospital um, for almost two weeks. I had been in a coma from him beating me. Why didn't I leave that time? Well, I tried, but I didn't have anywhere to go. And any time right. I set someplace up for me to go, which I had to, I had family, thankfully, that could help me, but their resources were limited. So sometimes you don't have seven times to leave and this person find you. So I had that one window of opportunity, I left, but the stalking happened and he found me. So now I'm in a position where if I leave again, this time I'm truly going to be homeless. I don't have anywhere to go. So I have to find a way to stay and, and bear it and do the best that I can to protect my kids at least. That's right. another, another big part of it is the children. Where do you go when it's a lot of adults will say, well, their mothers, fathers, well, if they didn't have children, so they're not a mother or a father or their children are grown or taken care of by someone else, I will just leave and go sleep on the streets, but not when I have children. No, no. But I think one of the things you're pointing out that is so important for people to understand is leaving can also often make the violence grow far worse. And the other thing is that very common for abusers is the issue of control. They want to control you, so they move you away from family. They try and disengage you from people who could help you. They alienate you from any sources of support, which increases their control and incapacitates you from being able to, to make rational choices for yourself because they just rob you of all these choices. Yes. I think that's a good point is the isolation. A lot of people who've been with an abusive person have sometimes isolated themselves, not intentionally, but that's just how the relationship made the situation go for them. They isolate themselves because they don't want to bring their family into it, or they don't, their family has gotten tired of watching it. It's hard for someone on the outside, like for my mother to see what was happening to me and my children, but knowing she couldn't do anything to change the situation. So people for their own well-being have to start pulling themselves away. And that's hard to, when I work with victims now or with their families, I explain to them the isolation and I say, no matter how frustrated you get, you have to always be there for that person when they're ready for you. Welcome them with open arms. But the reality is we don't always have that. So for me, the thought of having nowhere to go and not knowing that there was some place that I could go when the time came for me to finally leave was scary. And that was what kept me in that relationship from one beating to the next beating to the next. Um, I continued to cover for him. I continued to avoid uh, engaging with law enforcement. And then of course, like I said, I myself had been arrested and convicted of filing a false police report. So at that point, I completely shut down from law enforcement because I have a bad reputation with them and they have a bad reputation with me. So there, there lies again in, in five minutes, we've probably just covered several different reasons why domestic violence is so, so complicated and why it is so hard for a person to leave when on the outside it looks so simple. 
Amanda, let's talk about that for a second, because you touched on something which I think is significant. When people wonder, well, why didn't she leave earlier? One of the systems of support that many people take for granted are police and the courts. And in your case, particularly the courts, you find yourself in an even worse situation. Uh, pardon me, I have a puppy. Puppy is barking in the background, but that's that's the source of that noise. Let, let's talk about this for a second, because you finally decided you were going to testify against him. You took, you had the courage to stand up and do it. Him and he and his family made it look as if if you did, things would get far worse for you. So in your fear, you recanted. And what happened? You got charged with a crime. Simply because you were trying to protect yourself from greater harm to get charged with a crime, and you weren't able to remove that for several years later. And it took the effort of, of you and others who knew you, including us, to step forward to be able to get a, a pardon from the governor in order to remove that from your record. So this brings us to a, a very important question. What is a woman who's caught in domestic violence supposed to do if she can't rely on law enforcement and the courts to protect her when she is, faces further threats from Exactly. Yeah, so one of the, the first beating that I um, ever experienced with him was about four months into the relationship, and I was very cooperative with law enforcement because at that point in time, this relationship was over. A person put his hands on me, especially the way he did. There's no way he loves me, and I would never allow myself to be treated like that again. So I was very... I was a cooperative victim to law enforcement. I let them take photos. I, I wrote a statement. And I thought how we see it on TV, you know, he gets arrested. We go to court. Everything happens very quickly. And I go back to living my life. And I don't ever have to worry about this person again. But that's not the way our court system works. These things drag on for weeks and months. And in that time... The victim has now started to second guess whether they want to move forward with this. Their life has been put on hold. They're starting to miss the abuser. They still love the abuser. And then again, you have to remember if they have kids with this person, they're still connected through the children. And now if that victim has reached out for maybe a protect order or had the abuser arrested, but they have kids together, well, the courts aren't going to take father out of the kids lives so now he comes in and uses the courts to abuse her through the use of the children through custody and child support and all of these things make a person want to back down or back away from that then you also have the abuser who could be very apologetic you almost start that when you get the hope for change they've apologized they've learned their lesson and that's what i had i was fortunate in that i didn't share children with my abuser. However, I had children with my ex, and my ex was then using my abusive situation that I was in against me to gain custody of my children. So I still had to take the consideration of how the court system was involved in my life now with two different people. Um, and then you don't want to have to go to court, for me anyways, I didn't want to go to court and sit in front of all of these people and describe what had just happened to me after I told the police, I thought the police would take care of that all for me. Now I have to get in front of strangers. I have to sit in front of my abuser and tell again what he did to me 
when I've been told by him that I'm not supposed to let the outside world see what's happening inside. And then to know that that could be used against me by my ex to gain custody of my children. So all of these thoughts were going through my head and there was a lot of fear because of the threat that my abuser was making. That's what led me to the decision that I made on the day of court, which was to just recant. Because if the police can't do it like we see on TV and in the movies, they can't put this person in jail without my help and I have to do it for myself. I'm going to make a decision that's better for me, not what helps the police solve their case or what makes them feel better about doing their job. It's about my survival and protecting me and protecting my children. And that's what led me to recanting. I did not know that by recanting in court, I would then face criminal charges, which is exactly what happened a few weeks later after another meeting. So I go to court and recant because he's promised he will never do this again. And I believe the promises. And anybody looking in from the outside could say, well, how foolish. And I can say that now because 2020 is hindsight. But in that moment, in the emotions that you're living through and the love and the hope that you have for this relationship, you're going to believe whatever you want to believe. You're going to make yourself believe what you want to believe. And that's exactly what I did. So when I, when I was beat again, and that was only... 10 days later, um, and this time was much worse than the previous beating, I was not thinking about the fact that I could possibly end up going to jail because I recanted in court. Now all I'm thinking about is, how did this happen yet again? But I still don't want to tell the police because last time I did that, they forced me to go to court. And the fact that I even let this case go to court was his excuse for beating me the next time. So right. now I've been taught a lesson. Like Chris, like you were saying, Chris, um, the power and the control. They use all these tactics to, to work, to reshape your mind. And they get you to make the, the steps that they want you to take by threats of violence or actual violence. So after I got out of the coma and was discharged from the hospital, um, where I spent about two weeks or two days, um, I was arrested filing a false police report in the previous incident. And then I was ultimately convicted because I pled guilty. I was given um, a choice to take this to trial and fight a felony perjury charge, which was explained to me by an attorney that a felony perjury charge it is a federal charge. Um, yes, that's a serious charge. Very serious, with a lot of prison time. If I were to be convicted, and the thought of having to fight a police department was more than I could handle. And I still am trying to keep myself safe from this abuser. I'm trying to regain custody of my children from their father. And now I have to fight to keep myself out of prison. So when they come and offer you a plea deal for a misdemeanor with its 30 days jail time that could possibly be suspended, it's pretty easy in that situation to take it, even though you know you didn't actually commit that crime. When you called the police and you reported that you were just assaulted by your partner, that was the honest-to-God truth. But now you're going to change your story. 
And, and they knew it was the truth because they had photographs of it. They had repeated calls to the police. They had witnesses. They simply got mad at you for what they considered wasting their time. They were, they were punishing you. And, and in so doing, they were adding insult to injury. They were making the life of the victim that much worse. It's, it's really a shameful uh, element to this whole story. Amanda, how did you maintain your equilibrium? How did you keep your faith that you could get through this? I am a spiritual person. I have a lot of faith in God. So I pray all the time. Um, I was still fairly isolated from my mother, who's been always been my main support system. But the little bit that we did talk, there was a, always encouragement coming from her. That kept me... That gave me hope that I was going to get back to the life that I was on before I met this person. My grandmother had passed away in that time, so I really, truly felt like she was my guardian angel. And I would tell people, like, she shut the doors from heaven because she said it was not my time to come. And I started I started telling people, this person is not going to be the person to decide whether I live or die. But... It wasn't that easy because it still took six more months. My kids were the biggest focus. I had finally um, regained custody of them. Their father had moved to another state. So that that eliminated that issue for me. Now, I didn't have so much fear for the kids as far as losing custody, but now it was about protecting them um, from any harm. So I... You go into survival mode, to be honest. You, you take it one day at a time. There's, it's depressing to talk about it when you look back on it, but you don't have goals for the future. I got to the point where I realized that the game that he was playing, the mind game, he was beating me down mentally. So I had to work twice as hard to pick myself back up. But my kids and my family were what gave me the strength um, to keep praying to God, not lose faith. I mean, I never, I never questioned God during that time. My little phase where she did, why is this happening to my daughter? Why would you let this happen to her? She doesn't deserve this. Of course, she didn't tell me that at the time. She, she, that would be much later. I never had that, though. I really did always keep faith that this was not where my life was going to be for long. Um, but again, I, I really did just take it day by day. Unfortunately, I can say I didn't have long-term goals at that time. Right. I would think in that situation, you, uh, in a survival mode, you, you're, as you said, you're just trying to get through this day, get through tomorrow. But I recall when you came into Homestretch, one of the principal things you really had to concentrate on was making sure you were completely safe that no one could find out the address of where you were living, et cetera. Um, there was a whole lot of effort put into the safety plan because you were at great risk during that time. Yeah, I remember, um, well, one of the things I don't know if you recall was my move-in date, but my move-in date means a lot to me because um, I was supposed to move in a couple weeks later and I was still living in a domestic violence shelter where I'd been for about three or four months at that point. So I knew I was getting accepted into home stretch, and I had a potential move-in date, but it was a little bit further than what I was hoping for. And once I was assigned a case manager, I shared with them that my daughter's birthday was on August 5th, and she would be five. And that was, that was the birthday present she asked for. Was she just wanted to get out of shelter and get into her own home. Yeah. So... 
um, they were the case managers worked together and they were actually able to move my movement data up. So we moved into home stretch, into our own condo with the keys and it was fully furnished and there was food in the fridge and everything, all our welcome home gifts on the table and all of her on the countertop and all of that happened on her birthday. And I've always told that story because I said, I, as I progressed in life and was able to start doing things for her for her birthday and getting her gifts, I still was never able to do what Homestretch did for her on that birthday. So That's I, I great. we didn't get to keep up with <laughs> the standard <laughs> that Homestretch set for us. That's, that's lovely. That's a wonderful reminiscence. And Amanda, I want to say, you, you've gone on and done some extraordinary things. You end up um, getting a master's degree from the University of Southern California in social work. You worked for several different agencies. You become a noted speaker. Um, most organizations now that are aware of you uh, ask you to come and speak. I think you did another podcast right before this one. And that is a, uh, you, you are adding, a, you're really doing something extraordinary, which is you're taking the pain and the suffering that so many women have gone through, and you're turning it into something that can help lead others to safety and educate others about this terrible issue which still plagues our nation and our families. I want to ask you, if for those listeners who are not as familiar with the whole issue of domestic violence, what did in your mind are some of the misconceptions about domestic violence that you would like to correct with people? One of the things is the idea of what a victim looks like. That was, that was a big thing that I heard when I started going public with my story and really sharing the details of my story. So people hearing and seeing pictures and how many times I interacted with the law, with law enforcement, the court dates, you know, my abuser got a 55-year sentence. So, you know, from that, it, it was the magnitude of it was pretty bad. I went to jail. I had a conviction. But everybody always looked at me and said, you just don't look like a victim of domestic violence. And the more I heard that, I started thinking, what does a victim of domestic violence right. look like? And where, what does everybody have in their mind? Because I was a blank slate to that. I, re- I can't pat the person on the street and say, oh, that looks like a victim. That one doesn't. So I think that's a big misconception is there's no face to domestic violence. It runs across every you know, economic status, race, religion, ethnicity. That's right. It's across the board. And you know, that's why they say domestic violence has no boundaries. There are no. lines drawn around a certain population of people to protect them. And unfortunately, the reality is it's happening in houses next door to us when we think that we live in a safe neighborhood that's not a lot of crime, not a lot of violence. But that's not always the case. Amanda, your point about what does a domestic violence victim look like is, is, is really good. One of the things we discovered in Homestretch is that it happens to everybody of every class. Now, we, of course, receive people once they've become homeless, but that doesn't mean that before their homelessness occurred, they weren't in some very nice circumstances. We had a, one woman who came to us with children who was a wife of a diplomat, and she had the hardest time escaping because her husband had diplomatic immunity the police could not do anything to protect her. She finally escaped, but it was only after the, her husband started beating up this little child of hers, as well as her, and she just fled for her life. So 
we really need as a society to recognize that domestic violence could be happening to someone in your family, could be happening to someone next door. It could eventually happen to you. And we need to develop an awareness and the resources for women to escape before it gets too dangerous. Yeah, there's there's a lot of work done after the fact, but the prevention work uh, right. is where we're still lacking. And like we're saying, you know, someone in her situation may have a lot of resources, but still had to flee to homelessness um, for so many different reasons. You know, the family may not want to take her side in that situation. Um, People are afraid to get involved. They don't want to stand up to the abuser. Then you have other people who are already um, economically disadvantaged. I explain to people, I've been in a shelter. I lived in a homeless shelter for other people fleeing domestic violence for four months. Um, and, I was, and I went on to a transitional housing program. So even after those four months, I wasn't completely self-sufficient. But the, that's the reason these resources are there. You know, you need a little bit of a hand up once in a while so that you can get to the point where you are self-sufficient. And I think we need to destigmatize homelessness, destigmatize domestic violence, and then just all these other social issues that are intertwined with it. You know, there's also substance abuse and mental health. And when it's a victim who is dealing with substance abuse and mental health, she's judged, he or she is judged very harshly as if it's their fault. Um, the, the substances or the mental health issues would brought them into this relationship or what caused this relationship to be abusive. I totally did not have any of those obstacles, those barriers, but I still became homeless. And so I tell that to people. You don't, no one ever saw me as a victim of domestic violence because I don't look like that. And now it's, well, you don't look like someone who was homeless. What does someone who is homeless or is homeless look like? So I think that's um, another big part of where we need to do more work on prevention um, so that so many people don't have to experience homelessness. But when they do, because it's going to happen, we destigmatize it and we normalize it. Amanda, I'm so proud of you. I'm proud that you have demonstrated courage and resilience and faith and that the love for your children and love for other people comes through so beautifully. You really are uh, a hero in my mind and I think you'll probably be a hero to others who know you. And I wish you the very best in your career and that you have many, many opportunities to tell your story because more people need to hear it. They need, they need to understand the gravity of the situation that, and that given the right resources, people can get through it and build new lives, just like you have. Thank you. Let me ask one last question. What, is, what do you most wish that people understood or could do about domestic violence? You could uh, take a magic wand and wave it. What would that, what would that thing be? I wish we could have compassion for the abusers as well. A, a lot of people are conflicted with me saying that right now. And I've, I've started on my next step in my journey is to do more work with abusers because that's the only way we're going to end domestic violence. I mean, we're not going to end it by teaching victims how to stay out of abusive relationships or safety planning. We have to get to the root cause. And I think we have to have compassion 
for the abusers. And what and me, I have to take that label away as well. They don't have to be abusers. They have to be people. So if I could wave a magic wand, I would love to just help people not be abusive, not have those controlling behaviors, the, you know, the power control, coercion control, all the different words that we're using, um, but that they would be open to receiving help for what it is that has happened to them in their life that has led them to be an abuser. And I, I through my own therapy, which Homestretch gave me several years of therapy, um, but through my therapy, I began to be more sympathetic to my abuser, and I had to work through that because I'm very confusing, because I can't go back to having hope for this person to change her be. I have to hope for this person to change for the better of society. And I would like to see more victims be able to get to that point, ever get to that point as well. It's hard to get there. It's very confusing mentally. But if we could start to have compassion as a society for the abusers, if we could take away the blame and the judgment and just start seeing that these are people and circumstances, that would be what my magic wand would do. That's beautiful, Amanda. This reminds me of a, a, a briefly a little story of how your life ended up touching an abuser. A few years ago, the Washington Post did an article about you and your story and how you came through Homestretch, profiled you, and it was a very lovely story about you and your journey. It was read by a man in prison on a life sentence for killing his wife. He was sitting in prison in agony because he realized that he had done something so terrible that he couldn't take back. He read your story and it wept when he read it because he thought to himself, I wish my wife had survived like Amanda had survived. She should be the one living, I should be the one dead. He ended up writing me a letter, as I was mentioned in the article, and said, would you help me find a purpose for living? If I have to live, I wanna know how to do it, given what I've done. Fast forward a number of years, he did a lot of work of self-reflection, coming to grips with his deeds, became a leader in prison. He led all sorts of groups of other men to reflect on what they'd done. He wrote an article that got published in the Marshall Project that gained a lot of attention about his crime and his remorse and how he wished he had a chance to serve other men who were at risk of doing what he'd done. And that led to his parole. And he is now um, living a stellar existence, a new life. He still has the dream of working with more men who are at risk of violence, but what he is doing is working with men who are drug addicts, as he was when he committed his crime, and he's doing beautifully at it. He's been asked to sit on various commissions, and he's been interviewed for a film about his life for the BBC. And this all stemmed from your story touching him and giving him hope that maybe something could happen for someone who did something terrible, that, that, that wished he could help others escape that for their own lives. And uh, at some point, we need to introduce you to him, given that you help precipitate all this. It just made my day. That's the whole, <laughs> that's the whole reason I share my story. Um, it's healing for me, but it's because I want other people. And I realized I came to a fork in the road at one point in my life where I realized I have to do this for people who are considered the abusers. Well, they are the abusers 
abusers, uh, but they're the ones that are committing these acts as much as for the victims. And I think for someone like him to be leading that way for other, usually men, um, who are perpetrating violence against intimate partners, is going to have a, a bigger impact than me as a victim coming to them. Right. So that's, that was always one of my goals was my story to have meaning. So what is the meaning in my story? So you and, and him have made my day for that. Great. Well, Amanda, again, thank you so much. Uh, keep, keep doing what you're doing. Keep inspiring others um, so we can eventually end domestic violence and all live fruitful, loving lives. For those listening, if you yourself are caught in a domestic violence situation or you know someone who is and you want to offer help, the first place to go is the National Domestic Violence Hotline. The number is 1-800-799-7233. Let me repeat that. The National Domestic Violence Hotline is 1-800-799-7233. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. Please like and subscribe to The Mixed Down. And if you want to learn more about the work of Homestretch, go to homestretchva.org. Again, the website is homestretchva.org. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Amanda.